So I'm Seth. Uh, I get to uh, privilege to serve as the worship pastor and creative director here at Heart of the City Church in partnership with my gorgeous wife, Micaiah Owens. She has my last name. We're married. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. I, it's, we've been married for nine and a half months, and I, uh, I am so stoked about it. Um, and I plan to be stoked about it until I stop sucking air on this earth. So... It's my plan. Um, you saw the, the people in the, in the video, uh, those are my parents. Uh, they're the lead pastors here. I know, I, I'm sure I'm telling most of you in that, and you already know all of that, so it's no surprise. But uh, they're beautiful people, and I'm so happy for them being able to rest over this weekend. But I also am extremely honored that they would entrust me with um, the burden, the privilege, the, you can insert word there, of speaking to this church. Because if you know my parents, you know how much they love you. You know how much they love Heart of the City Church and how much they care about you and care that whoever's teaching you isn't preaching heresy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so here goes. <laughs> um, the theme of this entire weekend is freedom. Uh, how many of you were at Freedom Friday on, on Friday night? Yeah. yeah, okay. Whoa. It was fun. It was a blast. If you weren't there... We had a lot of fun and uh, wish you were there. Uh, it, was, it was really cool being able to see these, these different, hear these testimonies that I hadn't necessarily heard before and that a lot of people haven't heard, and then also just being able to worship. Um, it's so fun to be able to have a whole night where we're just praising the whole time, and we have a blast. Um, can we thank the worship team from today? Didn't they do an amazing job, wherever you guys are? These, they... I'm just so impressed with them. I, I, get, I get to meet with them on a weekly basis, and we have small group, and then off, also we lead worship for services, and I'm just so blessed by the character of these people, their consistency, their, their sacrifice, their lack of need to be recognized and be in the spotlight. Um, in my life, I've just seen a lot of musicians. Um, there's just this tendency among musicians to be, I don't know, I don't know how to describe the word, but they're not it, so it's really, it's really nice, to, it's, and, it's, and it's refreshing. Um, so we're going to continue on with the same theme, uh, freedom. It's, it, it's 4th of July weekend. Yesterday was Independence Day. We celebrate our freedom from the foreign oppressors, the birth of our nation. England doesn't own us. Isn't that awesome? Um, we have a, usually I like to draw from one specific text whenever I speak. I, I might bring in some other ones, but there's usually one primary chunk of text that I like to preach from, um, just so there's context involved. You can see, you know, either, not a whole chapter a lot of times, but like half a chapter or something, so it's just not one verse taken out of context, but lucky for you guys, uh, I couldn't pick one. There's two, and it's, and they're two pretty long ones, so I'm gonna have to ask your guys' permission uh, this morning. Well, not in the morning anymore, this afternoon, so you guys should be good to go. It's past noon. <laughs> Um, to, to bear with me as we read through several uh, scriptures. <laughs> several. Are you guys ready? Let's do it. Let's go for it. It's, it's the 11.30 service. We're like, I'm leaving it all on the table. I don't, we got nothing after this. I'm just going to go home and sleep or something. So this, <laughs> All right. Um, let, me, let me give a little bit of a um, background on these two pieces of, of, of scripture before we before we enter in. So this is gonna be coming out of Romans and Galatians, which could be argued as Paul's most important letters. And the reason for that, I think, would be that Romans um, is, ref is often referred to as Paul's greatest letter. 
and it was written to uh, a people, the Church of Rome, obviously, we can, if, we, if we know our history, they became a, if not the, major center of early Christianity. And then the Galatians, I never knew this until I was studying for this sermon, but uh, this part, the Galatians was the primary text used in the Protestant Reformation, and, is, and it is known as the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. I just thought that was, that was really cool. Regardless of their, relevant, their relative importance to one another as in comparison with the other letters, we can't deny that there are certainly parallels, many parallels uh, in, these two, in these two epistles of Paul. Um, they're written, uh, it's said or guessed that they were written about nine years apart from each other into completely different audiences, but we see some very similar themes and especially in Romans chapter six and Galatians chapter four, they really tie in well together. So those are the texts we'll be reading. So let's get to it. Galatians four, one through nine. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of women, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. Formerly, when you, did not go, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, I love this, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Romans 6, 12 through 22 says, almost, almost looks as a continuation from the previous passage in, in Galatians. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. I'm using this example, or I'm using an example, from everyday life because of your human limitations, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. We made it through. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your beautiful word. Thank you for this, this opportunity we get to come together as the, the, the community of saints, Lord, the body of believers, 
God, to praise you and to hear your word. And we pray that that is what will be spoken this morning or this afternoon now, your word, not mine. God, let me simply be a mouthpiece and a vessel for what you would speak to your people today. Lord, we entrust this service and the rest of this day to you. We ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was seven years old, uh, my parents had been pa- youth pastors at a church in, in Boise, Idaho called Capital Christian Center. And when I was seven, we moved to Vancouver, Washington to serve under um, Pastors Bob and Sue McGregor at City Harvest Church. Do you, how many of you guys remember Pastors Bob and Sue from The Sound in January? They came and they were the couple who, who spoke and prophesied. They're a beautiful, wonderful couple. And so they, they were kind of an early church plan at that point still, and they had asked my parents to come, and even though my parents had a, I mean, thriving, it was a thriving youth ministry and everything, they just, they felt the call. And we moved to rainy, I'm talking, when I say rainy, I mean like every day, Vancouver, Washington. Um, when we moved there, we moved into a mobile home, and I honestly have nothing against mobile homes because I look back at those times, and they were some of the most beautiful times of my, of, of my life. I didn't know that it was any kind of status symbol. It didn't matter to me. But we did, we did live on six and a half acres, which was amazing. It was, I look at it as the ideal situation for a, for a little boy to live in because I had six and a half acres that was basically my sandbox. And I, got to, and I just got to go throughout the woods. My dad cut a trail in the woods, and I would go back there, and I would... Many of you know my affinity for Lord of the Rings, so I'd be like fighting orcs and all that. And, I, and I, I've talked about that before, but just to reestablish, I fought many, many an orc in my day. Um, I even had, I, I think I told some of you guys, but I had a bow and I would shoot into stumps and pretend, and my grandma made me a Legolas costume. So I was all about it. I could never get the speed down that Legolas has, you know? I'd always, it'd always take me a few more seconds, but I enjoyed it thoroughly. Anyway. Not long after we moved to that land, uh, that, that six and a half acres with the mobile home, my dad uh, came back from a trip and he brought home this guy. Um, his name was Copper. Uh, he was a chocolate lab mixed with a Chesapeake Bay. Um, sadly, Copper passed in 2013, but he lived a really long and great life. Um, but when he was a puppy, that guy was out of control. He was as wild as a buck. He almost ate the ankles off of two sheep that we owned. And somehow we made the decision to get rid of the sheep instead of him, as if it was their fault that their ankles were getting eaten off. And if that wasn't, if that wasn't bad enough, this guy could not stop chasing ladies. He would break out of our fence and just go chase girls all day long. And I don't know how many children he has alive today, but... He was, he, he was a sinful talk. <laughs> Anywho, eventually, eventually we were driven to get him fixed. Um, I, let's not talk about the theological implications of an animal sinning. I, I'm not, I'm just, it was a joke. That, that was a joke, everybody. It was a joke. It's okay, guys. You don't have to call my dad after this one. Um, so anywho, we got him fixed. And against all the laws of nature, he still went out chasing ladies. And he bore the consequences for that because uh, our bus driver saw him laying in a ditch in front of our house and called my dad and he goes, and she goes, your dog is dead and I don't wanna take your home, your kids home before you come, before you come and move him. So my dad comes home, he's like, oh my gosh, we got copper fixed and then he died. But really what had happened is we had got copper fixed and then he went and tried to do things that he was no longer physically able to do 
it really messed with him, and he got really delirious and sick. And so he was fine soon after that. But <laughs> once we got him fixed and that wasn't enough, it came, it came to the place where we're like, okay, we need, we need some other kind of line of defense here because that guy doesn't care if he doesn't have the tools to do the job anymore. He, he's still going for it. So what we, we got to... Okay, don't call my dad about that either. <laughs> Anyways... Uh, so we bought an electric fence. We bought a wire, electric fence, and um, put it up. And uh, my dad decided that uh, we put it up just around all the non-forest property. That's where Copper hung out. He didn't really get a go in the forest unless we were taking the four-wheeler back there and he was chasing it. But we put it around, the, I think it was probably an, a two-acre part that wasn't covered by forest. And uh, being the, if you know my dad, the soft, meek, non-intense, just kind of passive guy that he is. He decided that the most efficient and effective way to teach Copper not to run away was to crank up the voltage and wait for him to try. It probably took Copper, I wanna I want say two encounters with his new surroundings to realize that his season of sowing wild oats had come to an end. Um, he had a, what I would call a, a healthy fear and reverence for that fence from that point forward. Unfortunately, though, Copper was not the only member of the family who tested, uh, <laughs> tested his luck with that fence. I'm not gonna throw Jamie under the bus today, but for me myself, I also had two encounters with that fence. Um, the first time, it's pretty simple, I was an eight-year-old or nine-year-old boy, and I went up to it, and I thought, well, I better try this out. And, and you'd think I would learn from that first time because it hurt and it and scared me and I, I might have cried a little. Actually, Jamie might have cried when I did it because she was afraid for me. <laughs> Anywho, later on, I would say a few months later, I was playing catch with my dad and uh, the ball went through as uh, that did often happen. Um, catch could get really intense sometimes with my dad. <laughs> and then I would get mad and I would just chuck the ball and I'd be like, I'm not playing anymore. <laughs> anyway, one of those times, it went under the electric fence. And uh, the only way for me to get the ball was to crawl under the electric fence. And if you've never had this sensation, getting 2,000 volts right there is very unpleasant. And if, that, and if the grabbing it with my hand didn't teach me, that certainly did. So needless to say, we all learned to keep our distance from the, from the fence. We all learned that it was, it was better if we just stayed away. And after a few months without copper having an incident, my dad decided, well, we've all, learned, we've all learned our lessons from the fence, and so we could just turn it off. Copper isn't going anywhere. And as soon as that fence was shut off, copper could have decided to take off at any time. There was, there was a place where we had no other fencing. It was probably 100 feet. Do you remember that, Jamie? On the side of the house where it went to the back road, where it was just 100 feet of just, just one wire at about knee high. Copper could have jumped over it. Well, he was getting chubby then, so maybe not, but he could have slithered under it, but he just wasn't getting close to it. And so we lived there another five years, and Copper never tested his luck with that fence. My dog's constraints had been removed, but he had no idea. And he was free to go wherever he wanted, but he stayed within the confines of the fence due to fear and ignorance. Copper simply didn't know what it meant to be free. And for a dog, we can go, oh yeah, he's a dog. You know, that's, that's what they do. They don't get it. But can we blame Copper for that mindset? I don't know if it was a mindset in his head. <laughs> Probably just 
Um, being an animal, realizing that if he gets hurt enough times, he's probably just going to stop doing it. But is his failure to claim the freedom that had been given to him such a far cry from ours? Now, Seth, are you telling me that on the 4th of July weekend that I haven't claimed my freedom? This is America. My middle name is Freedom. Now, for some reason, I felt like I sounded like Bill Clinton right there. I didn't, was that? I'm not here. Okay, anyway, anyways, I won't say any more about that. Um, before, but before you grab your stones and your Roman candles and your bottle rockets, please hear my heart. I'm not talking about a lack of intelligence or, or an inability, a, a, a lack of capability, as Copper's problem might have been. Instead, my desire, and I believe the desire of the Father this morning or this afternoon, would be to reaffirm some truths from Scripture that we have recognized and, oh, nice. Whoa, that was an interesting ringtone. Um, <laughs> anywho, did you guys see our ringtone video from last week? Yeah, yeah. Our cell phone video? Anyways, that's fine. It's not a big deal. It's last week. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Gotta show it every week. Anyways. Um, I'll get back. Today is to read from the truths from Scripture that we have accepted as true, we know is true, but at times we have failed to claim for our own personal lives. I've seen a tendency among many believers, especially from my generation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take some heat on this one for my generation. That there's this mindset that says I'm a sinner and I, I can't be good and so there's really no use in fighting my nature and denying the inevitable. We're all a bunch of filthy rags, as it were. I find that statement to be a logical fallacy. And this, this is the quote I would say, the mindset. In response to the grace of God, I cannot attain perfection, and therefore I should not pursue righteousness. It's not, in my opinion, a reasonable or legitimate conclusion within the kingdom of God. I find that that's... I, what I've found is that, is that a belief of the depravity, a belief in the depravity of, of humanity is useful and helpful to the extent which it cultivates humility inside of us, but becomes harmful to the extent which it cultivates defeatism. Now, what I mean by that is that if acknowledging our sinful nature is keeping us humble, Great, doing its job, wonderful. Let's stay humble, let's recognize, hey, you know, when we, when we compare ourselves to Jesus, it you know, looked pretty bad. But if acknowledging our sinful nature is leading us to remain, or leading us to justify continuing in a pattern of sin, I think we have a serious problem. To gain further understanding of what Paul meant in his letters to the Romans and Galatians, I decided to do a, probably not a super deep, but a word study on the word free. In the Greek, I should say. The verb to make free, uh, used multiple times in Romans chapter six, is eleutheroo, which is to set free, to liberate, to release from bondage, or figuratively, to remove the restrictions of sin due to being delivered by God into true spiritual liberty. The adjective form of this word is eleutheros, which means free, deliver from obligation, unbound, unshackled, 
or figuratively, once again, free to realize one's destiny in Christ. That, that is the word that we're dealing with in Romans chapter six, both times when, he uses the, when Paul uses the word free. We especially in the United States love and, and romanticize the idea of freedom. I think that we've kind of made freedom kind of our thing. It's kind of how we, we like present ourselves to the rest of the world. We got like our freedom tattoo and we're like, US freedom. And, and to some extent, I mean, that's, it's beautiful. We, the, the amount of, uh, of freedom that is able to exist within this nation is, is a wonderful thing. But I would say that some of the freedoms that we claim and that we, we possess and we know are ours are not as important as some of the freedoms that, we, that do belong to us that we do not claim. Sometimes I think we don't know what we've been freed from. We love that Jesus comes and heals our pain. We love that Jesus comes and gives us a new identity in him. We love eternal life. We love the blessing that comes from living for the Lord. We sing, I'm no longer a slave. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Whom the sun sets free is free. Yet somehow there is a popular tendency in the faith to subconsciously deny one of the most essential elements of what the death and resurrection of Jesus has purchased, our freedom from sin. Our freedom from sin is, what, is one of the most essential things that Jesus purchased on the cross. There's a phrase in Isaiah 53, five that we often use when praying over someone who's struggling with bodily injury or physical ailment. I think that as soon as I say Isaiah and I say disease or something like that, you, you know by his stripes we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. I mean, I've heard that at least several hundred. I, I was gonna say thousand, but I didn't want you know, to be too exaggerative, but I bet you it's been a thousand times that I've heard that throughout my life and spoken it even over myself. Now, I wanna make it very clear that I absolutely believe that Jesus can and does heal us physically. It is one of the primary elements of his ministry here on earth. He would go preaching the good news, doing his father's work. He would, he would tell basically what was happening. The kingdom of God was coming and then he would heal people or he would heal people and then tell, or anyways, he was preaching and he was healing. He was doing a lot of that. Um, and so for me to deny that Jesus heals us physically, I mean, I, there's no grounds for that. He absolutely does. And I, I, I hope and I pray that um, if you face a, a physical disease or some kind of ailment throughout your life that, that Jesus absolutely does heal you. I hope the same for myself. But when we look at the context of Isaiah 53, 5, we can see that if you read the scriptures right before, Isaiah is talking about our transgressions, our iniquities, and our peace. Transgressions, iniquities, peace. Therefore, the conclusion would be, by his stripes we are healed from what exactly? By his stripes we are healed from sin. Now, I can, I, can, I can hear some of your thoughts right now, that there's this disappointment or, or offendedness from this translation. But I think that's only because we have a temporal mindset rather than an eternal one. I would like to submit that spiritual healing is an upgrade from physical healing, not a downgrade, not a lesser healing. Healing from sin is so much deeper and wider and fuller and long-lasting than, he than healing from any, any disease that we can get on this earth. Our physical healing means that we get to perhaps spend a few more decades on earth with the people we love. And hallelujah, I, 
I love that. I'm so glad that physical healing takes place and that a new hope is restored. And sometimes when someone goes through cancer or, or some other major disease, their life is transformed and they're able to live in a completely uh, distinct way than before. God uses physical healing on this earth. There is no denying that. Too late if you don't believe that. But our healing and freedom from sin means that we are now and forever allowed to commune with God in his holiness. And by the way, when we get to heaven, the physical healing comes too. So when we are healed from sin in the end, I love the song um, by Bethel, it's, uh, I think it's called Nearness. It's on their We Will Not Be Shaken album. And Jen Johnson, I haven't heard a lot of worship songs kind of about mourning, and this song is. And she sings, whether on this side of heaven, I know that you are the healer. And I think that that is a perspective that we need to grasp a little bit. Whether on this side of heaven or not, we are healed. We are healed. And, and if you think about 75 years or 70 or 90 or 115 on earth compared to eternity, it makes physical healing on this temporal earth sound pretty small in comparison with the healing from sin that we have received through Jesus' death and resurrection. Well, that's good and fine, Seth. But you and I both know that every person in this room sinned this week, if not this morning. Now, I don't know why the skeptical person in the congregation has a southern accent or sounds like Bill Clinton, <laughs> but I do know that it's the 4th of July weekend, so it feels right. <laughs> Does it not? Yeah. It feels a little right. Come on. <laughs> anyway, to that, I would say good point. Excellent point. You have spoken truth. You have spoken truth. And in that fact lies the beauty of the grace of God. Jesus knows that we're gonna fall short throughout our lives here on earth. It's not like we go and we surrender to Jesus and then we, we mess up the next week and he goes, oh, hold on, what? I thought you said you love me. And, and you went and you, and you messed up and you got angry? I, I think that sometimes we, we paint this picture of God and it's like he's naive or he, he, doesn't, he doesn't get it or something like that. And... Uh, I think that we need to remember we're talking about the Alpha and the Omega. Right. We're talking about the beginning and the end. We're talking about the author of creation. We're talking about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and Yahweh. He is, he's not ignorant. He's not naive. And in his infinite wisdom and understanding, God looks upon the heart of a man. That's what the Bible says. And he knows the difference, much more than we do, between making a mistake in living a life of unrepentant sin. For many believers caught in addiction to a particular sin, the influence of the devil is used as a crutch and justification for perpetual sin. But in my reading of the Gospels and the entirety of the New Testament, it doesn't look to me like a whole lot of power was left in the hands of the enemy when Jesus died and rose again. If you are a believer, he may be able to lie to you, but he has no authority to make you sin. Don't get caught in that. He may be able to lie to you and say, hey, I can make you sin. But that in itself is a lie. He doesn't have that authority of you. If you are a believer, you are covered by the blood of Christ and you are participating in the victory that Jesus has already won. And you are not enslaved to sin and the devil can't make you do a thing. I believe that under the new covenant, because the spirit of the living God dwells within me, within us, the enemy has about as much power as we give him. And I think that we've given him far too much. So what do we do? We fight. But not for victory. We fight 
from the victory that Jesus has already won. It's not like an earthly battle where we're going in, we're going, wow, this, this, this enemy, this is a big army. I wonder if we're gonna be able to make it. I wonder if, I'm, if we're gonna win. No, it's like this. It's like, wow, so glad we won that battle. Now let's stand our ground. That's the battle that we fight. We fight from a standpoint of victory, not with some like doubt or hope that maybe one day we'll win. Jesus already won, but we have to stand in the gap and proclaim his victory. Proclaim it over our lives. It's a gift that's been freely given to us, but sometimes we just go, "Ah, I'm good, I'm good. These chains feel okay. they've They've gotten comfortable over the years. I wanna give you five smooth stones, as my dad would call them for fighting from victory and claiming the freedom from sin that has been freely given to you. The first one is remember who your daddy is. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God set forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. As a child, maybe some of you can relate with this, I, can, I think back to, to um, times, situations where if I was alone, I'd be very intimidated, but if my dad was next to me, especially if he was holding my hand, I was hot stuff. <laughs> I was hot stuff because, because according to my belief as a little boy, there was no one stronger, no one smarter, and no one who would even think to stand up to my dad. Now, as I got older, I realized that it was a little bit of a far-fetched mindset. However, I mean, Jonathan Owens is still the greatest man I've ever known. And the beautiful thing is, now we can have a greater confidence than even that in our heavenly Father, and you can't be too idealistic about it. We cannot overcome sin walking alone in our own strength. I'm, this, the, the point of this message is not to be like, okay, now we've got equipped, and now I've got my strength, and now I'm gonna fight the sin. No, but when we hold the Father's hand and we show him off to the enemy, we are unstoppable. When we walk through the darkness, or when we walk by that bully, or when we walk by that, that pornography screen, or when we, when we walk by that, that place where we knew we used to buy drugs from, or we, when we walk through that, through that situation that would puff us up in pride, or we walk through that situation that would make us feel greedy and want more and, and begin to lust after things that aren't our own, We show our father off to all those things and they don't have an ounce of power over us. Number two, remember where you came from. Galatians 4, eight through nine, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Romans 6, 20 through 21, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you were now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Something that has weighed heavily on my mind for several years now, from time to time, is this idea, for lack of a better term, of spiritual amnesia. We see it so prevalently in the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. The story goes something like this. God saves Israel. Israel praises God. Israel forgets what God saved them from. Israel sins against God. Israel bears the consequences of their sin against God. Israel cries out to God and God saves Israel. And around and around we go. We see that all the way through. It's not just in one book either. We see it and we read it. And like, I read through second, first and second Kings sometimes. I'm just like, are one of these guys gonna figure it out? You, 
somebody's got to tear down the Asherah poles, okay? If you guys have read through Kings, you know you're like, just like, are you serious? And, like, and there's this hope. It's like, oh, and he was doing so good. And then he did what was wrong in the sight of the Lord. And he started praising himself. And he started, you know, worshiping other gods. And I'm just like, and it's easy to point the finger at those kings. And it's easy to point the finger at Israel. But the fact is, we do the very same thing on a personal scale. Today, we forget the faithfulness of God. Catch this. When we forget what our vomit smells like, it's easier for us to return to it. When we forget what our vomit smells like, it doesn't look so bad. That little pile of vomit over there, I mean, it could be kind of soup or something, you know? You're laughing in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, do we not? Forcing ourselves to remember the muck that God rescued us from helps us to remain victorious. Number three, holding, hold nothing back. Just want to like sing that Kim Walker song. Every time I say this, I'm like, nothing's going to hold me back. Anyway, Romans 6, 12 through 13. So many of these things make me want to sing. Like, like the, the one before, remember where you came from. I don't know why, but I keep wanting to sing, I'm still Jenny from the block. <laughs> no. Anywho, <clears throat> Romans 6, 12 through 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. When I married my wife, I made a promise to her. Micaiah, it's just me and you. I'm gonna be faithful to you. I'm gonna be true to you no matter what comes our way, always. Done. End of story. I'm gonna be faithful to you. But what if on my wedding day I would have said, now Micaiah, I, I promised you to be faithful to you forever. As long as I get to keep a few mistresses, girlfriends, and flings on the side. No? No? Oh, okay. Our marriage would have ended before it started. There's no way that she would even finish that ceremony with me if I was talking like that. Now I know that that seems a little bit far-fetched, like no one would ever do that in a wedding. Come on, Seth. But when we compartmentalize our faith in Christ and justify a few little sinful habits, mistresses, girlfriends, and flings, we compromise our relationship with God and keep ourselves enslaved. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Amen. What God has asked from us is simple, but it's not easy. That we surrender everything and lay all that we are at the feet of Jesus. All right, number four, don't get offended. Don't mock the grace of God. Romans 6, 14 through 16 says, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. So what then, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or, slaves, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You see, in postmodern Christianity, there seems to be this idea that pastors or churches can lean a little bit more toward truth or a little bit more toward grace. And we look at it just like that. That's kind of a gracey church, and that one's kind of a truthy church. You know, I kind of prefer, you know, kind of like a mixed breed of a, you know, somewhere in the middle, or, or no, I'm all about truth, or I'm all about grace. And, and I even subscribe to that mindset for a big part of my life, but lately, I've realized that if we pit grace and truth against each other as opposites on a side of a spectrum, we understand neither grace nor truth. 
In John chapter one, it says in verse 14 that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And then three verses later, as if maybe he knew we'd struggle with this one, like the whole grace and truth thing, just to like, you, you ever think that sometimes in scripture, I, sometimes I see God repeat, repeat himself in scripture, even in the same chapter, and I go, huh, I might should get that one. I'm, I, I think I probably should hold on to that one. If God, if God deemed it worthy enough to be said twice, you may wanna just stick that one in your pocket. So three verses later it says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If we're taking scripture as seriously as we ought to, then we cannot compromise one of those on behalf of the other. I've heard it said that truth without grace is like surgery without anesthesia. And I would say that I, I resonate with that simile. However, I've not heard a similar comparison for grace without truth. So as a more complete statement, truth without grace is like surgery without anesthesia and Grace without truth is like anesthesia without surgery, an induced coma without reason or purpose. An induced coma without reason or purpose. When we attempt to share truth without grace, we provoke fear, rebellion, hatred, and disbelief, and we send people going 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction of Jesus rather than welcoming them in to, be, to partake in him. But when we attempt to share grace without truth, grace is trampled underfoot. It is abused, taken advantage of, and mocked. And in the midst, we cultivate continual enslavement to sin. Grace and truth, together, hand in hand, was Jesus' way. And if we're seriously following him, it will be our way. Number five. Oh my, stay thankful. Romans 6, 17 through 18. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves of sin, you have come to obey your heart, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Then later in the chapter, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. That's some good news. That is some good news. I've seen a pattern in my life as well as in the lives of others that when I remain thankful to God, I respond to him and I seek him. But when I get whiny and querulous, that's the new word of the day, querulous means inclined to make whining or peevish complaints, I'll have you know, we tend to drift. It makes me think of my favorite hymn of all time, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. We are indeed prone to wander. And when we do not cultivate gratitude, thankfulness, 
toward God for all that he is and all that he's done. We will act selfishly and be led by our flesh. Please stand with me.